and welcome to Blast Beats and Bicycles, the bicycle podcast episode. Uh, we are on the phone today with Ash Narayanan from Our Streets Minneapolis. Ash is the executive director of that organization, and I'd uh, love to welcome you to the show. Thank you so much, Jason. Really glad to be here. I'm looking forward to uh, our conversation. I'm an avid cyclist, obviously, and uh, so a lot of your mission is uh, near and dear to my heart. Um, and you've been with the organization now for just over a year, and a lot has changed since then, hasn't it? Yes, indeed. There's been a whole bunch of change. Uh, right now, we would have been at the very start of our open street season and would have been working to put on open streets Lindale. Uh, and, you know, last year we had about 60,000 people attend that event, and right now wow. that just seems impossible. And yeah. uh, who would have ever predicted such a thing from a local perspective just one year ago? And, of course, right. many other uh, things have changed as well. Yeah, there's a lot of things going on, obviously, in the community right now, and I, I'm anxious to dive into those. Um, you, uh, you've been a transportation activist at both the state and local level um, in, in Wisconsin in particular. Uh, I'm curious to know how those experiences prepared you for what you're doing at our streets today. Yeah, so um, my background is in transportation engineering. I uh, came to the University of Wisconsin-Madison in 2009 from India, where I grew up, uh, for a master's degree in traffic and transportation engineering. And that was kind of my first, um, you know, induction into the, uh, into the transportation system and transportation advocacy. Uh, so once I finished grad school, I decided I didn't want to go down the conventional path of uh, traffic and transportation engineering and instead wanted to do advocacy work to really kind of fundamentally change how we think about transportation, uh, both in Wisconsin and in, in the country. Uh, so I joined an organization called 1000 Friends of Wisconsin, uh, which was, uh, whose mission was building better communities through something called smart growth that focused on good land use patterns. Uh, I was the policy transportation policy director there, um, and some things were similar uh, to what I do here and some things were not. Um, I was mostly involved in grassroots organizing uh, a lot in the Milwaukee area, and I was also pretty active as a lobbyist in the state legislature. And our goal was to move money away from things like big highway projects and into uh, what we think are better, like transit, walking, biking, and rolling. Uh, so those things really gave me a deep understanding of how transportation decisions are made, uh, how transportation engineering and planning results in projects on the ground, and uh, you know how uh, money is actually uh, uh, money actually flows through the system. Uh, but what I wasn't necessarily prepared for here was, I think, the immense expectations that this job would bring. You know, our streets, Minneapolis, is <laughs> a beloved local institution, and handing over leadership of an organization like this to an outsider is always risky. I think uh, folks have you know, a lot of fashion and uh, they have a lot of opinions about biking and transportation and navigating all of that has been a challenge, but something that I really loved. You're not a Packer fan, though, are you? Well, I sure am. <laughs> oh, no. You know, well, uh, it's been great having you on the show. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I came to, like I was saying, I came to the U.S. Uh, in 2009, and I had no idea what you know, American football really was, but sure. uh, as a young man, I just kind of walked right into the beginning of the Aaron Rodgers era, oh, and our, and then we had our Super Bowl victory in 2010. It was just a way for me to connect with people, and sure. I just was hooked, you know. But you know, uh, as a as a Packer fan, um, I but I'm also a transportation policy advocate, right? And as an advocate, right. you're supposed to kind of uh, sometimes you lose a lot of policy battles, and that's something that I, uh, you know, you have to pick yourself up after losing and keep going, and that's something I admire about my friends who are Vikings fans, oh. uh, who have to do that after oh. every Monday. <laughs> oh, man, that hurts. Uh, <laughs> oh, that hurts. Uh, well, I feel like in the last couple of years, the Vikings have just been really, really good, and I'm looking forward to our battles this year if we do have an NFL team. Yeah. That's, that's exactly right. You know, I'm, I'm curious to know a, a little bit about your work at the, at the state level um, in Wisconsin, you know, and how that differs from the th kinds of things that you're, you're doing with our streets at the more local level here in Minnesota. Sure. Um, you know, it was inc incredibly different in terms of where uh, 
public opinion was uh, Wisconsin at the state level had a Republican supermajority, um, and a lot of the, uh, you know, we weren't even allowed to say the words climate change, for example, in Wisconsin oh, at, uh, at an official level. Yeah, uh, Scott Walker government actually banned public servants from recognizing that climate change was a threat. And so uh, the status quo really was about bigger, more uh, expensive highways and how you can drive your SUV around. And so it was a challenging environment to work in, to say the least. You know, we, uh, as advocates, we had to form these alliances with uh, a lot of different people, I think. Uh, And a lot of our work was trying to stop, you know, bigger destructive projects like inner city freeway expansions that would have destroyed, you know, black homes and businesses in Milwaukee. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the biggest change uh, for me was uh, in, in Wisconsin, I was trying to stop bad things from happening. And here in Minneapolis, it seems like we're so much further ahead. And our work is much more focused on getting good things to happen. So getting more bike lanes, getting more people to walk bike and transit. And we have a really supportive local government here. And we even have a a much more supportive state government here. So I think that's kind of the biggest change that I see. Well, it's got to be it's got to be refreshing to be able to have more of a positive approach uh, to your work than than fighting to keep things, you know, from destroying communities. Absolutely. I think, you know, just in terms of being an advocate, in terms of your own personal mental health, and in terms of just uh, the excitement around the, pol- the, you know, the possibilities of the future, I think, uh, you know, being in Minneapolis is, is, is really, really great for that reason. Yeah. And so, so what's your vision for the future of our streets, Minneapolis? I think right now we, uh, I think the strength of our organization really is our staff. Uh, I believe you've had an opportunity to to meet some of them. Um, And I I genuinely believe that we just have an extraordinary group of people uh, who work here. And, you know, these are folks who could be doing anything, you know, anywhere in the world, but have chosen to be at our streets, Minneapolis. And so from from an organizational, like, culture perspective, I really want to continue to fine-tune our organizational culture so we continue to kind of attract uh, that really, really good talent, you know, where we, uh, the work we do feels inclusive and empowering. Um, And so this means, you know, no one is uh, carrying a disproportionate workload within the organization. No one feels like uh, they're not able to say something because that's what their real opinion is. And I really want to keep those strong interpersonal relationships going. Mm-hmm. You know, and as a small nonprofit, we often work a whole lot, you know, especially during open streets time. And that can come at the expense of friends and family and relationships. Um, mm-hmm. And I really want uh, that to change. You know, we, we, we've done a good job so far, but I really want those strong boundaries to exist. Uh, we're able to focus on the things that really matter in your personal life. But I think from, uh, you know, a larger perspective around what the organization could do in the community, I think we should continue to keep asking ourselves questions all the time and keep, you know, changing and growing depending on the answers to those questions. And, you know, uh, some of those questions could be, you know, what, what are we doing to shape the conversation around the future of transportation, you know, not just in Minneapolis, but in cities across the country? And how do we continue to be thought leaders and advocacy leaders around, you know, the design of our streets? And how can our communities make uh, sure they accommodate everybody? And how do we create re- uh, policies around, you know, things like evolving vehicles and technology? And then, uh, you know, are we really making sure that our streets belong to, to everyone and uh, not just uh, a select few? You've got such a broad portfolio of activities. You know, you've talked a couple times about open streets and the infrastructure policy activities that you do from an advocacy perspective. How do you how do you not only keep people sane at the organization, but also keep that together under cohesive strategy? Yeah, and you know, like I said, we are an evolving organization, and I think we continue to evolve. Um, I think our mission uh, right now is to make the city a better place for folks biking, walking, and rolling. Rolling, uh, it could be people in wheelchairs or even folks using the electric scooters that you see all the time. Um, And all of our programs um, are directly tied right now to ultimately advancing that mission. For example, you know, Open Streets Minneapolis 
has many different goals, but I think the most important one is that it is such a powerful real-life vision of what our streets can be if we prioritize people on them and not just cars. So our mission is broad, and I think uh, that's a challenge as well. We get a lot of pressure to be all things to everybody, and of course that's something that is a recipe for failure. And so I think we as an organization need to do a better job of creating a framework that allows us to have uh, you know, consistency in the issues that we choose to engage in. And I also want to say that we do tie our mission to building a healthy region. We know how big of you know, an impact transportation investments have on things like livability, um, you know, uh, ranging from things like our economy to getting folks to come and live in the Twin Cities region, uh, to making sure that we have stable, affordable housing. And so I think that all of these transportation decisions must be very carefully and deliberately made to kind of advancing the community that we need to be in. So I think our framework should really kind of go through that lens. You know, from a mission perspective, and you sort of alluded to it a few times here, you know, you have a, a vision for a transportation system that works for everybody. You've talked a lot about who those different constituencies are, but it's also low carbon and, and equitable. And I'm curious to know from your organization's perspective, what what does that look like in terms of practice and activities that your organization takes on? So I think we start off with uh, having a shared vision for what our streets could look like maybe 10 years down the line or 20 years down the line. Uh, And I think we've had a lot of discussions as a staff and as a board and in our volunteer work groups about what that vision should be. And then we kind of work backwards to identifying what steps we need to take to get to that vision. And to kind of talk about the vision itself, I think, for example, if we were in the future, you know, I'd like for us, uh, for, for folks in Minneapolis, you know, to have the widest possible array of zero and low carbon transportation choices. Things that, uh, you know, are not are, are possible to some extent right now, but, uh, oh, you know, much more uh, in the future. Any trip in the city should be, we should be able to make using um, walking, biking, a selection of shared electric vehicles. And if you do want to use a personal car, that's an option too. I think we should have had achieved our vision zero. You know, we truly should have mm-hmm. zero deaths on our streets through uh, all you know, thoughtful measures to improve safety. Um, and uh, we would have significantly shifted uh, what our streets look like in terms of how much street space is dedicated to cars. Uh, we would have mm-hmm. taken, uh, we would have made sure that we uh, take our precious, valuable public right-of-way and divide it more equitably so people about walking, biking, and rolling uh, have a more fair share of what really belongs to them. And then finally, I think, you know, we would be, I think driving itself has a ton of externalities. There's a lot of cost that society bears as a result of how much we drive, right? So uh, whether it's air pollution, whether it's traffic crashes, whether it's, you know, the cost of uh, parking, all of those costs would be made more apparent to people and we would be uh, paying a fair share of those costs. And I think all of those things taken in, um, you know, as a whole will ultimately, uh, I think, result in our mission of making Minneapolis a better place for biking, walking and rolling a reality. It's interesting you touched on that that idea of, you know, paying for the right of way and all of that. And obviously among the variety of hurdles that that a system like that has in front of it is the perception that cyclists, for example, don't pay to support the in, the construction and management and maintenance of, of infrastructure. How do you how do you just respond to criticisms like that? You know, first of all, I think that's a false characterization. Most people who bike also are taxpayers. They also own cars, and so uh, they do not only pay uh, the gas tax for for the uh, you know for the gasoline that they buy to fuel their vehicles. They're also you know homeowners. They're also renters. They pay sales tax on things, and so they do pay a lot of money into the general fund. And second, I think uh, there's a there is a perception that only motor users pay their fair share. That's just not the case. I think I've seen estimates where, uh, you know, I've seen less than 60% of all uh, streets and um, car-centric infrastructure is paid for using the gas tax. A lot of that is paid through, you know, our general fund money. It comes from federal subsidies. It comes from uh, things, uh, you know, sales tax that we pay for. 
and, and then when finally when you look at who is uh, putting the most impact on our streets, cyclists um, actually have some of the lowest impact in terms of uh, wear and tear on our infrastructure. I've seen estimates that say, um, you know, cyclists have about a thousand times less uh, wear and tear. And so if you actually calculate what, um, you know, folks are actually uh, using the infrastructure for, if you, if you were truly honest, you would be paying people to bicycle instead of saying that they don't pay their fair share. <laughs> yeah, you could, you could argue pretty compellingly that it's the uh, car users who are being subsidized as opposed to cyclists and, and pedestrians, right? That's exactly right, uh, including, like I touched on before, all the uh, societal costs that people bear. You know, we have 500 people in Minnesota who die as a result of car crashes. Uh, we have folks who have premature deaths because of particulate matter emissions uh, from car exhaust. We have, um, you know, all this car-centric infrastructure that, co- that you know, uh, that, that, rises, that raises the cost of of, uh, of homes, uh, you know, putting in an underground parking lot in a building raises the cost of your entire building by about 30%. And all of that money is being subsidized by, uh, you know, people who don't own cars or choose not to drive as much are still paying into that infrastructure e- right. because they don't have a choice. With, with so many um, stakeholders and, and so many organizations that have an influence on transportation planning, where, where do you exert your effort? Where are the most important places for our, our streets, Minneapolis, to exert influence to make the, the kinds of changes you'd like to see? Our Streets Minneapolis is a hyper-local organization. Our mission is to make the streets better for folks biking, walking, and rolling within the city. Having said that, though, uh, there are many different entities that play a role in uh, what the streets of our city look like. Um, the city of Minneapolis is by far the largest and most powerful entity that has a say in what our streets look like. But Hennepin County uh, owns a whole bunch of our streets as well. The Minnesota Department of Transportation owns a whole bunch of our uh, streets and freeways. And then uh, our transit agency, Metro Transit, under the Metropolitan Council, which is a seven-county area, makes a lot of decisions on uh, public transit within our region. And so there is, uh, you know, I think we have an important role to play in influencing all of these three agencies, but at the same time, we also need other organizations to influence folks at the state level, and then there are national organizations that that influence people at the federal level. And I think uh, within the ecosystem of, of, of transportation advocacy, there are very specific roles each of us can play, but at the same time, uh, we all need to be coordinated and make sure that our values and our goals are aligned with each other. Yeah, and it's it's interesting, you know, you, um, the wide range of um, government entities involved in, in Minneapolis transportation has given me a lot of questions about the new transportation action plan and, you know, how much influence the city really can have in implementing that action plan. Absolutely. Minneapolis Transportation Action Plan, or the TAP, as they like to call it, is an addendum to Minneapolis 2040, which was uh, the new comprehensive plan that was passed by City Council uh, a a little while ago. I think it was maybe uh, two years ago. So um, the Transportation Action Plan is a guiding policy document that will uh, define what our transportation infrastructure looks like for the next 10 years. And uh, our first impression of the plan is that it is very good. Um, I think that uh, the city has done a really good job of of creating a detailed, comprehensive uh, roadmap for uh, making transportation decisions and transportation investments for the next 10 years. Um, The Transportation Action Plan has some really strong goals. One, by 2030, they'd like three out of every five trips to be made by a mode other than a car. So they'd like three out of every five trips to be made walking, biking, rolling, or on public transit. Wow. Um, then this, yeah, so I think that's a really ambitious uh, and exciting goal uh, to look forward to. Uh, and then there's some really interesting things in the plan as well. Uh, one is the creation of what they're calling an all ages and abilities network. This is a network of uh, either protected or low-stress bikeways all across the city. So uh, when I mentioned earlier that I'd like, you know, our vision that 
any of these trips, any trips that we make in the future could be made by a variety of modes. I think the all ages and abilities network is going to be key to getting there. So I should be able to go from North Minneapolis to South Minneapolis on a bicycle um, and feel like I'm protected, uh, feel like I'm able to do that with my kids, for example, mm-hmm. feel like if, if I'm in a wheelchair, I should be able to do that as well. Um, and so uh, that's, that's really important. Uh, the second, the other thing is there's something called a pedestrian priority network that they are uh, putting together, which is uh, uh, and, and again a network of um, uh, of sidewalks and things where people will be where they will target pedestrian improvements, so better crosswalks, better lighting, um, and um, uh, making sure that uh, people are able to walk throughout the city. And uh, there's some you know more technical exciting things happening in the plan as well. Uh, one very significant thing, uh, this is something that we specifically asked for before the plan came out, uh, was the removal of a metric called level of service. Level of service is, um, uh, in my mind, an outdated metric uh, that prioritizes um, uh, the movement of cars. So uh, if a car had a long wait at a traffic intersection, uh, level of service, the level of service metric would say that intersection need to be improved to get more cars to pass through, which then results in wider traffic lanes, which wider intersections, and mm-hmm. um, essentially making it harder for uh, bikes and, new, and walkers to get through that intersection. Now that metric is going away in the new transportation action plan, which is really exciting. It will give um, more modes an option to uh, be considered in the success of transportation decision making. That that sounds like a, a really exciting change, and obviously something that will have a sweeping impact on on lots of different streets within within the city. Um, are is anything within the track the action plan uh, underway right now? Did they start making any immediate movements? I think there are. Uh, you know, uh, the the plan is still in a draft stage. It has not been officially adopted by city council. But I do think that uh, the city is moving forward with the general principles outlined in the plan. So um, they are doing things that focus on the on the all ages and ability networks, the pedestrian priority network. Um, but I still I think that uh, it should come before city council in the next couple of months or so, which is when we'll really start seeing changes being made. Uh, and what are some of those things that people will notice more readily? I mean, what are some of the more visible changes that they're likely to make as they start to roll the plan out? Um, so I think that the plan also ties in with something called the Vision Zero plan. Mm-hmm. The uh, Vision Zero, uh, as I'm sure you're familiar, is an effort by cities across the country to get to zero deaths on our transportation uh, network uh, from traffic crashes. And uh, Vision Zero and the Transportation Action Plan are going to work closely together, I believe. And uh, the, the first things that Vision Zero wants to do, I think, are uh, so there are some streets that are just not really good in terms of um, mobility for folks biking, yeah. walking, and rolling. Uh, yeah. These might be, you know, four-lane undivided streets, for example, that don't have Lindale. pedestrian infrastructure. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, so North Lindale Avenue uh, one is, is one that's slated for a four to three conversion. They'll remove uh, four traffic lanes and instead make it one lane in each direction with a, a two-way left turn lane in the middle. This is a proven strategy that has been uh, shown to improve safety across the board. Uh, the other thing people might start to see is more protected bike lanes come uh, in front of their homes, um, and uh, hopefully, you know, that'll encourage folks to be able to uh, just get on a bike and get to where they need to go, feeling protected from high-speed traffic uh, around them. Uh, another thing that they might see is uh, mo- things called mobility hubs, where you will have a variety of choices to be able to make a trip. So you might, uh, at a mobility hub, there could be a bus stop, there could be um, a bike share system there. There could be, you know, uh, those scooter corrals where you might be able to take an electric scooter. Uh, and you, uh, it should have a really good, uh, you know, crosswalk and uh, good pedestrian infrastructure. As a South Minneapolis resident, I've noticed a number of things, uh, you know, primarily that have been uh, focused around uh, the pandemic and, and social distancing, physical distancing, um, especially in Minnehaha Parkway around um, the Minnehaha Falls area and uh, the River Road where 
um, streets, uh, street lanes have been blocked off and bollards have been uh, added to create a uh, protected bike lane on, on some parts of the parkway. And I'm curious to know if those uh, have the potential to become permanent and if there are other areas uh, in town that actually might be candidates for some of this early adoption. Yeah, I, I certainly do think that they have the potential to become permanent. It's not necessarily an effort that we ourselves have been involved in because we uh, chose not to prioritize uh, those street closures in this moment. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think that uh, there has been an engaged and active community of bikers, a lot of whom have been uh, volunteers and work group members of ours who uh, are now uh, so good at bicycle advocacy that they've been able to push the right levers at the park board and at the city to get those changes actually mm-hmm. uh, uh, actually made. I think um, uh, these, uh, they've been really great. I myself have loved riding on you know, the, the West River Parkway uh, yeah. without cars, and I'm hoping that some of these changes uh, are made permanent, but I don't know if they will be. Um, in terms of uh, in terms of you know moving forward, I think it's really important that the city and the park board and the county you know take into account what the different uh, needs of diverse Minneapolis communities are before they make uh, significant infrastructure changes. Uh, different communities may have different priorities in this moment. Uh, some sure. uh, folks might care more about getting to their jobs and making sure that they have uh, enough PPE. Uh, to be able to uh, go to their essential jobs, for example, and mm-hmm. uh, recreational cycling might not be at the very top of their minds, but I do sure. think this is an important and necessary step in the right direction. Uh, so I think time will tell, but uh, I, I, there's a lot of enthusiasm. They've been hugely successful, hugely popular, and we'd, we'd like to see more of these happen, but with uh, significant community engagement involved. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I would assume that given that most of these are on park board land, there isn't necessarily universal immediate access to all communities within the city, um, which obviously represents a challenge for from an equity perspective, too. That's right. Um, I think that, uh, you know, some of the communities that have been significantly affected by the protests since George Floyd's killing uh, uh, North Minneapolis in particular, uh, the Lake Street area in particular as well. I think um, you know they, everybody has different priorities right now, and so uh, making sure that we are listening to uh, community leaders and uh, community members going forward is going to be important. You know, obviously, as since the the lockdown started, since our stay-at-home orders uh, were executed a couple months ago, um, there's been a ton less motor traffic, motor vehicle traffic, a lot fewer mass transit trips. Um, And I'm really curious to know if you have been measuring any of that and seen any changes uh, to what's possible or, um, you know, what's what's thought to be possible for for more broad looks at the infrastructure. Yeah, um, our streets, Minneapolis, we personally have not been measuring uh, travel uh, changes as a result of COVID, but I serve uh, on what's called the Transportation Advisory Board for the Metropolitan Council. Uh, I represent a lot of the city of Minneapolis and uh, the really you know, uh, smart staff there gave us a presentation the other day about what they're seeing in terms of travel behavior changes. Uh, the significantly, we've seen vehicle miles driven being, uh, going down uh, we've seen drops that we haven't seen in you know in in a long time. Uh, of course, that also uh, includes transit as well. Um, Metro Transit has uh, only requested that people make essential trips to protect the health of the, their employees as well as others riding transit. Uh, and at the same time, we have seen uh, many more trips being made, especially for recreation um, along the fo- and along those uh, corridors that we just talked about. Uh, one thing that really struck uh, stuck out to me was uh, how many more people now consider teleworking as a viable alternative moving forward. I think this will have significant conse- uh, consequential changes for the future of American commuting. Um, I think more and more people are realizing that they can work from home. They'd like to work from home more often. 
uh, and bigger companies, I think, are going to allow that to happen as well. Uh, so that is exciting news, primarily because it means fewer people will be driving to work because most of us, 80% of Americans just drive in their single occupancy vehicle to work. Uh, I think that number is lower in the city of Minneapolis, but in general, it's a large proportion. Um, but that also means, uh, the other thing that was exciting to me is we're not necessarily seeing that uh, public transit uh, is actually spreading COVID at the rate that we thought it might be. Um, if you wear a mask and if you maintain social distancing, it seems like um, the risk is not that much higher than if you were doing, uh, you know, if, if you were doing other things. So uh, I, I think this is something that um, also is, is a good thing. Um, I think going forward, we need to, again, be really careful with uh, what different communities in Minneapolis need uh, and want. Uh, and making sure that uh, uh, the most vulnerable of us in society are being given the tools to access jobs, access opportunity, uh, and uh, at the same time, uh, maybe this is a uh, this is a fundamental way uh, shift in how we think about uh, travel in general. Yes, yeah, it's, it's interesting, you know, when you think about even even a, a really broad uh, look at who the community and the stakeholders are, um, people who might not necessarily have been uh, advocates for reduced parking spaces at restaurants uh, around town have been asking for, you know, sidewalk uh, cafe space or using vehicle parking spaces for, you know, pop-up seating areas. Are you seeing that that's... Uh, is that affecting the way uh, transportation planning and, and parking restrictions are, are viewed? I would say yes. I think uh, we are seeing this trend in cities across the country. Small businesses, especially food and beverage uh, businesses, have been hit the hardest. Mm -hmm. uh, they're you know, businesses that run on very small margins in general. And so uh, at this time, anything that they can do to get customers to come is going to be really important. Um, so we, uh, at our streets Minneapolis, we are operating from a harm reduction perspective. I don't know uh, necessarily that we would encourage people to go out and uh, you know, gather in groups. But if that is happening already, uh, we are hoping we can work with our partners at the city level and at the county level to mm -hmm. make sure that employees of these businesses feel like they are not being put in harm's way from an infection perspective. And one way to do that is to uh, make sure that we're opening up uh, some of the space that we've given over to cars previously uh, for the operation of these businesses. I think uh, um, you yeah. know we, we, used, we were seeing a little bit of that happen um, on Hennepin Avenue uh, and on East Street mm -hmm. and uh, on Lake Street as well. But of course, with uh, the killing of George Floyd, a lot of that conversation has moved away uh, from from that. In, but as as the summer goes on, I think uh, we'll start seeing more of that happening. And I think um, in general, this is. Um, this is an interesting shift and um, one that may give folks an opportunity to think about our streets a little bit differently. Yeah, it's, you know, I think about um, the, all of the hubbub that went on a couple of years ago around the Cleveland Avenue bike lanes in St. Paul and how uh, against those so many of those smaller restaurants were at the time. And, uh, you know, curious to now see some of those restaurants that are much more vocal in terms of, you know, their pursuit of having parking spaces be made available for seating and so on. So it's kind of an interesting cultural shift. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and I do think that there is, uh, even before, you know, COVID, there was a growing recognition amongst businesses of the business benefits of things like bike lanes. Uh, yeah, I, I know that there, this is still a contentious issue for, for lots of people, but uh, I think the work of folks like Our Streets Minneapolis and uh, people like the St. Paul Bicycle Coalition uh, to educate, to, to take uh, some of the studies that we're seeing uh, where people just show how much you know, uh, folks' revenues go up or footfalls go up and they have the good pedestrian bike infrastructure, that was starting to change people's minds. Uh, and, um, you know, it'll be interesting to see what happens going forward. 
We've talked a couple of times, and your mission is pretty clear about your your mission for your goal of, of equitable transportation. And, and I'm really curious to know what that means to you uh, and the organization. And more importantly, has it changed given the context of George Floyd's death and the protests that have followed? Thanks, uh, Jason. I think um, when we talk about equitable transportation, we have to think a little bit about the history of transportation decision-making in the country and how much structural racism and discrimination was embedded uh, into it. You know, right from the early days when uh, railroad lines were used to displace Native American communities to um, inner-city freeways like 94 in North mm -hmm. Minneapolis uh, or, uh, or in the Rondo neighborhood in St. Paul mm -hmm. being intentionally routed through black communities, and even today, um, uh, you know, where uh, infrastructure changes are made in communities without sufficient community input, I think um, all of those have resulted in uh, worse outcomes for people of color. Native Americans today in the U.S. have, uh, Native Americans in Minneapolis today have the most risk of being hit and killed by a car. Um, black indigenous people of color communities, BIPOC communities, breathe worse air as a result of where they live uh, next to next to highways and streets. And, um, uh, you know, uh, there's been systematic disinvestment in communities of color. So North Minneapolis, for example, doesn't have as good biking and walking infrastructure as some of the more affluent, wider mm -hmm. communities in the rest of Minneapolis. And so there's been a long legacy of uh, systematic disenfranchisement in transportation decision making and at our streets Minneapolis when we talk about equity in transportation we firmly believe that in order to get to better outcomes we need to dismantle those structures of decision making uh, and so um, going forward you know what we'd like to have happen is uh, that transportation decisions are put firmly in the hands of the community, uh, the vision for a street are guided by the values of the community that lives alongside it. And only then should we then bring in planners and engineers to start thinking about what the design of that street might look like. So we'd like to upend the traditional transportation planning and engineering processes to center and highlight the needs of those who've historically been left out. And um, that's kind of one way in which I think about equity at our streets Minneapolis. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when you use the word upend, it's it's a perfect word to describe that because, you know, everything has always been top down. And then there's a handful of, um, you know, sort of token uh, community meetings to approve a plan uh, or to give people a chance to see the pretty maps. But uh, they don't necessarily deliver the kinds of feedback that are, are appropriate or necessary, right? That's exactly right. Uh, I myself have been to so many community meetings where it feels like there's been a predetermined outcome uh, and that the community meeting doesn't really uh, feel like it's going to change anything. And that, I think, has historically led to a lot of mistrust, especially amongst black communities and communities of color uh, with agencies in, in, in the city and in the country. Mm -hmm. um, and sorry, I forgot to mention, Jason, about you asked earlier about uh, George Floyd's killing and whether that's changed anything. And I would say, yes, hugely, hugely changed public uh, public perception. Uh, one thing that I wanted to mention was the role of um, police in our transportation system. So in addition to all of those injustices that I, meant, uh, that I mentioned in the, uh, in the um, transportation planning and decision-making world, uh, the role of policing is layered on top of that. So, um, you know, uh, policing, our streets are where much of policing happens, whether it is mm -hmm. uh, black drivers being pulled over more per capita than any other group, um, whether it is undocumented immigrants being detected and deported through uh, traffic stops, uh, black bikers who've been attacked by police simply for biking in an area where they were considered they shouldn't have been. Mm -hmm. um, the violent reality of policing on our streets is something that we have to recognize and grapple with. Mm -hmm. And so um, all of a sudden there's been, uh, this is the reason why 
Our streets Minneapolis has for years been saying that enforcement is not a good way to make our streets safe for everyone. Uh, and in, in, in the last couple of weeks, we've just seen a fundamental shift in public opinion around the role of our role of police officers in our mm-hmm. uh, in our community, and we think that transportation yeah, should be at the very center of those discussions as well. Yeah, it's it's interesting um, because there are so many of those challenges and injustices that you've talked about that are v- becoming more and more clear and obvious uh, to everybody now. Um, and you know, I'm curious to think about uh, you know sort of protection of vulnerable road users at the same time. You know, there's, uh, we know statistics show that the significant number of traffic-related injuries are suffered by cyclists and pedestrians, uh, resulting from crashes with uh, almost always single-occupant vehicles. And, you know, from a practical perspective, um, with the reduction or elimination of policing um, and enforcement, what kinds of, what does that mean practically for these vulnerable road users? Sure. Um, so I'd like to first highlight that uh, we have something called a high injury crash network. Uh, the high injury crash network is a, is a network of roads identified by the city of Minneapolis as having uh, the most traffic crashes on them, especially for vulnerable road users like bikers, walkers, and folks in wheelchairs. And uh, there's something in common between all of these roads. The thing that is common is that they have primarily been designed for the speedy movement of cars over all else. Yeah. Uh, and so, like I was talking about, you know, streets like Lindale Avenue, Lake Street, um, West Broadway Avenue, they are, um, they don't really have any pedestrian and bike accommodations. They have fast traffic through them. They're four lane undivided. Uh, there's no adequate crosswalks. There's not enough lighting. Um, and it just is not a good and comfortable environment. And it is no surprise that we see a lot of the fatalities and a lot of the crashes happen. So a small uh, portion of the roads uh, are actually responsible for a very large proportion of traffic fatalities, uh, crashes for vulnerable users. So the point I'm trying to make is there's good, there's well-designed streets and there's poorly designed streets. And I think um, design is the number one thing that, is that results in uh, these crashes that affect vulnerable road users. Uh, so any design that encourages speeding is going to be worse for pedestrians, bikers, and walkers, and these roads do that. So the first thing we should be doing is to fix the design of these streets so people uh, are not able to speed or don't feel like they should speed anymore. And I, you know, I know that there's a lot of anger and um, you know, uh, calls for revenge against uh, people who uh, feel like they've been hurt by uh, folks driving a car. But ultimately, I think we should really recognize that uh, a lot of that behavior is the result of the environment that we put those car drivers in. When you design a road for to go 60 miles per hour, people are going to go 60 miles per hour, even if you put a 25 miles per hour a sign on there. So yeah. uh, I think there's other roads you know, that have narrow car lanes, that have wide sidewalks, a wide bicycle infrastructure where you just don't see um, the kinds of uh, fatalities that you do on other streets. And so um, I think that should be our first priority is putting money into fixing our infrastructure. Uh, and enforcement, again, seems to be uh, sort of band-aid to the real problem, which is poor design. And it is a problem that has grave consequences for people of color. So we're just saying that's not necessarily a tool that we'd like to use when we have much, much better tools that are at our disposal that works well for everybody. That makes that makes good sense. And you know, it makes me think. Um, you know, the such heartbreaking destruction that happened, especially on Lake Street, um, and to a certain degree in some of the heavier corridors in uh, in North Minneapolis. And there. There seems like there's, I mean, there's, they're going to rebuild in some capacity, um, but, you know, have you seen opportunities as part of that rebuilding to create that sustainable, equitable vision for transportation that weren't there before? Two of our core partners in our work uh, recently have been Lake Street Council and uh, the West Broadway Business and Area Coalition. These were folks that we were working with before COVID and before uh, George Floyd's killing. Uh, to reshape both Lake Street as well as West Broadway Avenue 
to focus more on people and not just vehicles. Uh, of course, um, I haven't had a chance to talk to them. Uh, I will be talking to them later this week, but mm -hmm. I think, you know, with the businesses being destroyed, they have a lot on their hands right now uh, mm -hmm. to help rebuild those businesses. But I do think central to these conversations should also be the role of um, these corridors on um, on safety. And uh, I do think that we have a role in making sure that communities are aware of what options they could have as they rebuild, uh, making sure that, uh, you know, we bring in our city and county partners to do effective community engagement with uh, making sure that folks have uh, a vision for what the future of that corridor should look like. Uh, and at the end of the day, I really think it should be up to the communities to decide what those streets should be. We see ourselves as being able to play an educational and a facilitation role, and I'm hoping, you know, um, uh, we, we can, we can put up what we see uh, in the next few weeks as we come up. Uh, you know, so as you as you look across the, the landscape, both figuratively and, and literally, what are some of the things you're most concerned about right now, or what are some of your most urgent priorities from a transportation perspective? Uh, one thing I'm a little concerned about is the, uh, right now, uh, city budgets and county budgets um, going ahead without the opportunity to do significant community engagement. Mm -hmm. uh, we are worried that major infrastructure changes continue to be made without, uh, for example, the Bicycle Advisory Committee and the Pedestrian Advisory Committee being able to meet. Uh, we worry that um, uh, city streets are being reconstructed without uh, folks in those communities being able to weigh in as a result of COVID. And we think maybe this is a time to, to do a little bit of a pause and listen deeply to what the community actually wants. Uh, that's one significant concern of ours. Uh, number two, I think um, I'm also, uh, you know, uh, concerned about the future of public transit in our community. Uh, already there was, uh, you know, all this rhetoric uh, about crime and stuff on the light rail systems. And now with COVID, I worry that uh, public support for it will go away. And I really feel like we need to invest in our core transit systems. I think that's going to be very important. Um, but, you know, I also think that uh, this is a time for us to really envision uh, what uh, a new system could be, like one that systematically dismantles a lot of the, um, the discriminatory structures that kept things in place the way they were, that led to these disproportionate amounts of uh, crashes and fatalities for vulnerable road users. And I think uh, this is a time for us to uh, to really be able to come together as a community and uh, think about what a new paradigm for transportation can be. Are there some encouraging signs that you've seen that may make that uh, closer to reality? Um, you know, it's always hard to say what's encouraging in the middle of, <laughs> uh, of a pandemic when you've just right. seen so many people suffer and so many people mm -hmm. die as a result. So I, I don't want to use the word encouraging, uh, but I do think that people are uh, realizing that a lot of the old systems that we thought were, uh, you know, cast in stone um, are, uh, may not necessarily be the case. Who would have thought that, you know, two weeks ago, we would be talking about defunding or divesting from the police department? Right. Who would have thought that, you know, so many people would be able to work from uh, work from home and fi find that they're able to do their job just as well. And so I think um, people have suddenly felt like a whole new world is really possible. Uh, and uh, that's, not, that's not necessarily just because of the ev events of the last two weeks. So that's all a result of a lot of organizing and the protests and, uh, you know, all the work that countless people have done before them. It's just coming to fruition now. Uh, and so I do think we have a whole bunch of work ahead of us, but this was a glimpse into a new reality that seems to be possible. Mm -hmm. If if people want to uh, get more engaged in support of what uh, Our Streets Minneapolis is, is working on, what are some of the most important things that you need help with right now? Uh, you know, we are a small nonprofit. We are just five staff, and we put on uh, a whole bunch of uh, programs and so our biggest challenge of course has been 
funding for our work. Uh, with COVID, with the cancellation of Open Streets this year, we're going to see a significant drop in our revenues, uh, which mm-hmm. I worry is going to threaten the uh, stability of our organization. So uh, donating to us is going to be the number one way that you can help us uh, grow our mission. And you can do that at our website, ourstreetmpls.org slash donate. But at this, uh, the other things you can do are uh, join one of our volunteer work groups. Uh, the Streets for People work group is the one that's uh, active at the moment. And if you go on our website, you can see when uh, the work group meets. We meet every month and we talk about all the different things going on in the bike and ped world in Minneapolis and how we can engage. Uh, and the third is if you, um, you know, if you see things that we share on social media uh, and you feel like that, that resonates with you and you'd like to get the word out, anything that you can do to help us get our stances and our word out would be really helpful. Well, we'll make sure to share those, uh, those links and those uh, details with folks uh, so that they can go out and learn more about what you're, what you're working on and, and ways that they can get involved. Ash, it's been really, really fun to chat with you, and thanks for uh, all of your enlightening insights on some of these issues. There's a lot to tackle, and obviously the situation in the city is challenging for all of us, but it it, uh, it sounds like you guys have some really uh, exciting things coming down uh, down the path, so to speak. Yes, thank you so much, Jason. I really appreciated the chance to talk to you, and thank you for all the work that you do in uh, highlighting uh, the importance of these things. Absolutely. Have a great week, Ash. You too. Take care, Jason.